I invite you all to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1. When you find it, put your finger on the, the first word that you find there. We're going to stay there for just a minute as we prepare to embark on the study of God's sacred and eternal word. We're beginning this study as part of an, an in-depth examination of what God would have for us in this epistle. This is one of the general epistles. There are seven epistles in the, in the New Testament that we'll call the general epistles. Those are written to a an relatively unspecified audience, and they're written by men other than Paul. We'll talk for just a moment about the, the authorship of this book before we read through the text and commend our time to the Lord in prayer, we'll see there that James is identified as the author. The New Testament has three different men that are referred to by this name. The authorship is sometimes debatable as to which of those three James, but what I can tell you is that the James that writes this letter stood at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. He heard the words of the Lord Jesus Christ firsthand. He saw miracles. He heard teaching. And it's with that biblical authority that James writes these words to us. It's knowing that this James walked with Jesus that gives us the assuredness in responding to what we're about to embark upon studying. The epistle of James is, is rich in its vocabulary. There's over 73 different Greek words that are used in this book. Words that are unique and not found elsewhere in the New Testament. And there's over 50 different imperatives. A read-through of James might make it feel a bit bossy. But again, it's this James that heard the gospel proclaimed from the gospel incarnate. James is sometimes referred to as the, the Proverbs of the New Testament, full of practical wisdom. It's sometimes referred to as the, the big book on discipleship, because it's got lots for practical living. But I want us to see this th throughout the course of our study as a synoptic epistle. By synoptic, we mean like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the evangelists that give first, second-hand accounts of the ministry of Christ. James is a synoptic epistle because he walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, and ultimately seeks that all who would hear his letter would imitate Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll, we'll read through a portion of the first chapter of James together. Father God, we come into your presence eager to hear from you, rejoicing in, in being able to worship you in songs, being able to worship you in fellowship, being able to worship you in giving. We pray that we would also worship you in listening, and not only listening, but doing, the practical living out of our faith. We ask for the guidance of your Holy Spirit as we examine this text both now and in the, the Sundays to come and during the week as well, that you would perfect us, acknowledging the permanence of your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everyone still has their finger on verse one. I'd invite you to stand together with me. I'm going to read from verse one through verse 18 for context. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. 
But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and let the rich in his humiliation. But because like the flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Let each person, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This concludes the ending of the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Returning briefly to the topic of, of authorship, as we delve into the study of James, we'll notice that there are a number of things that have come under criticism and have questions behind them. Over the, the years of church history, the authorship of the book of James is somewhat in question. I'm going to just briefly remind us of the three individuals by the name of James that we find in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 10, we find... The names of those who have been drawn to Christ as the original 12, verse 2 of Matthew 10 says, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So in this text, we're introduced to two of the James. We've got James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the, the sons of thunder. And we've got James, the son of Alphaeus. So those are two of our possible authors for this book. But Matthew chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, introduce us to another who initially was in disbelief of Christ and later became convinced of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And this Jesus, this James, is described to us as the, the sibling, the brother of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 13. We see that it was said that, forgive me just a moment. We'll come back to that one. But we'll go to Galatians 1.9 where we have a different identification of this particular James. We're introduced to him as one of Jesus' brothers. And we can identify that this James, Galatians 1.9, Paul speaks and says, I went up to Jerusalem and I didn't see any of the other apostles there except James, the brother of Jesus. I owe you that one. Okay, we'll find that passage in Matthew. I wrote it down wrong. But we know that, that this James, the brother of Jesus, is, is very probably the author of this epistle. But again, it doesn't matter which one of those three James, because each one of them walked with Jesus and heard firsthand the message of the gospel, saw the God-man, and writes to us with that authority. And so when we read the introduction of James, we see how it starts out. It says, James a servant of God. Now, how remarkable is that? Because whichever of the three James that we might feel is the author, they could have, he could have stood on that. One of the original, one of the, the OGs, if you will. He could have said, the brother of Jesus. He could have said, one who stood at Jesus' side 
as he preached. But look how he identifies himself. A servant of God. The same way that Paul introduces himself in, in the book of Titus. A doulos, a bondservant, a slave. It's from that position that James begins this exhortation to us with a humble understanding of his position as one saved by grace. He didn't say, hey, I, I was with him for five years or I was with him for 10 years. He says, I'm his slave. That's the, the apostolic authority with which James begins this letter. And then James goes on to say, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that we'll examine as we go through these weeks of, of James together is that James is sometimes a bit criticized for being a little light on the doctrine. In fact, next week, which is Reformation Sunday, we'll, we'll uh, look a little bit at what Martin Luther had to say about James. He calls it the epistle of straw. It wasn't his favorite book of the Bible. Luther, um, his faith is now made sight. He's recanted of, of more than a few things in his lifetime, but, but certainly it would be fair to say the brother was wrong when he said that James is a little light on doctrine because all the doctrine we need is in that first statement right there. James, a slave of Christ, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's an important way for us to begin this because our identity is in our belief of who Jesus is. The world cares a lot about titles, what we call people, what we call ourselves. Business cards are kind of out of fashion these days, but we used to pass a business card and they have a title on it. For James, his title is a slave. And his proclamation of his Christology is in who Jesus is. Jesus wasn't his brother. Jesus wasn't his teacher, his rabbi. It was his Lord and his Savior. In fact, we'll find that the word Christ is only mentioned twice in the entire book of James. But that doesn't mean that his teaching on Christ, his Christology, is any weaker. In fact, all the more, it shows us strength. I want to share with you a quote, lest we have a tendency to come to the book of James and think, I've been in the faith for a long time. This one sure seems like a softball, right? Seems like an easy one. The elders decided better than a month and a half ago that this is where we're going to go as a church. And we're a church that embraces sound doctrine. But remember from Titus what sound doctrine produces? Godly living. It produces godly living. And so as we embark upon this book, we recognize that we've been recipients of sound doctrine. But now comes the hard part. Now comes the part where we get tested because sound doctrine produces godly living. And in fact, James writes this letter simply because that wasn't happening. He's writing this, group, this letter to a group of people, we'll look at that in just a second, who understood the Christology, the message of salvation through the God-man crucified, buried, and resurrected, ascended to the right hand of God. That wasn't, that wasn't something that they needed to be convinced of. What they needed to be convinced of is taking that sound doctrine and living it out. So if you think you got a softball coming, I don't think we do. <laughs> I could tell you that because this cuts. Put it to practice. A quote from Douglas Moo, it's a great last name. If I had a last name Moo, I'd want people to quote me. <laughs> Moo says, furthermore, we must not minimize the contributions that James does to make certain topics of Christian theology. In addition to the obvious importance of his teaching on faith and works in relationship to the believer's final salvation, James also contributes significantly to our understanding of God, temptation, prayer, the law, wisdom, and even eschatology. To be sure, all of these arise in a practical context. But it will be a sad day for the church when such a practical divinity is not considered theology. Read that again. But it will be a sad day for the church when such practical divinity is not considered theology. So as we begin this study, remember that James is a synoptic epistle. 
he saw and speaks with the authority of one who gets this firsthand from Jesus Christ. And secondly, we must not think that this practical divinity is anything short of deep theology. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where James is going to, to take us. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Now, this is an interesting way. Again, these are general letters, so these are meant for a broader audience, but this greeting seems to call out an audience. We're setting context, right? Who, what, where, when, and why. The when, this letter is dated probably around 49 AD, roughly a decade before Peter writes his epistle. But yet, as we look at 1 Peter, there are some really remarkable commonalities to what we see. If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read for you the first two verses of, of Peter, the greeting here. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a messenger, right? To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. To those who are in the dispersion, similar to what James says, right? The 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, depending on the translation you read, you might get the word diaspora. And the term diaspora is one that was introduced to us in the, in the Old Testament. For those of you who might recall, a few years back in Sunday school, we looked at the, the biblical theology of Babylon. And we learned that under the Assyrians, the people of Israel were led away with fish hooks in their noses. And they were taken off into captivity because of their disobedience to God. And then we get to the days of Jeremiah and we see that the, the people of Israel, those who remained from the southern kingdom, were taken off into captivity in Babylon. God dispersed them. They were exiles. We'll come back to 1 Peter in just a minute, but please go to Ezekiel chapter 11. In our Bibles, we kind of see a little bit of a division between verses 14 and going kind of to the end of the chapter. But I, I want to highlight what God says through his prophet Ezekiel to those who are being dispersed. Look what he says, verse 14. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, go far from the Lord. To us, this land is given for possession. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I remove them from far off nation, from far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet... I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. So God promises to these exiles that while their, their dispersion was a consequence of their sin, that he would be a sanctuary for them. God is a sanctuary for those who are in exile. And guess what James and, and Peter are telling us? They're telling us we are in exile. Again, the idea of diaspora is a, is a population of people who are taken from their homeland and put someplace else. We have that concept even today in the world around us. We hear about people being taken away from Afghanistan. We know of great Cuban food in Miami because the Cubans came for a period of time there. And those, those, those diaspora populations. But in the days of James, in the days of the early church, that diaspora, that group of people were displaced, starting with the 12 tribes of Israel. Those who were the, the people under the, the old covenant. But Peter goes a step further, and, and he helps us understand, as does James, that now the new covenant people are also in that exile status. 1 Peter chapter 2, coming back to that, says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, with wage against your soul. As we begin this letter and as we think about trials and we think about sound doctrine producing godly living, we have to recognize we're in exile. We are not in our homeland. Okay? 
And for those who would receive James' letter, they've got two strikes against them because guess what? They're not only a part of that 12 tribes of Israel that have been dispersed, but they also are those who came to faith in Jesus Christ. And you know what that did for their relationship to those who came with them from their homeland? Division. So they got two strikes against them. First, they're Jewish. Second, they're Christians. Might apply to some of us, right? How are we to live in exile? And so it's with that greeting that James begins. James, a slave, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Like Ezekiel says, God promises to be our sanctuary in the middle of that dispersion and that exile. And then James says, greetings. Now that's an interesting greeting. If you line that up next to Paul, Paul goes into a greetings where he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Right? He has these warm greetings and James on the other hand is just kind of like, sup? (laughs) Just greetings. That's it. Let's just dive right into this. And I believe that that is not just a stylistic thing, but that communicates the urgency with which James wants to communicate to his brothers and his sisters. He wants to just get to the point. Enough about me, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dissertion, greetings. And he moves right into what he wants to say. And he begins with the first imperative. Again, James seems a little bit bossy at times. But we're going to keep in mind that this authority is one given to him by Jesus Christ. And it's one that he has because he's concerned about the church living out what they know. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that's probably all the further we're going to get today is verse 4. But verse 2 starts with, count it all joy. Another translation says, consider it all joy. Now this text, again, the elders brought this up a, a month and a half ago. Not knowing how our trial as a collection of believers would unfold. And we came to the study of James, not because it makes a great Hallmark card, right? Count it all joy. That is a truth we need to hear right now, but we're not talking about this because we're grieving. We're talking about it because it happens to be verse 2 of James chapter 1. So let's be clear on that. I've got another quote. This one's not from Moo, but another commentary. The guy's last name is Doriani. I'm not really familiar with any other books that he wrote, but he wrote a commentary on James, a reform commentary. And it says this, it is misleading to use James 1 as the first word in grief counseling. When Jesus met Mary and Martha after Lazarus died, he did not say, God has a a purpose in this, even though he knew God did. First, he comforted them. Then he wept with them. To use James for grief counseling is to miss its primary intent. End quote. So it's with this recognition that we come to this word. We come at a time where certainly we're very acquainted with grief. We are very acquainted with trials. And not just one trial, but various trials. But the imperative here, consider it all joy. And I'm not going to belabor the explanation of joy because we've all been in the church long enough to, to have understanding that happiness is a fleeting emotion and that joy is something that is anchored, built upon the foundation of our faith in Jesus Christ. So as I tried to put it into words and, and put together a definition of how I would express joy to you, it's this. Joy is acting on our confidence in the permanence of God's promises and not the passing nature of our problems. There's a couple of P's in there to help us remember it, right? So there's permanence in God's promises that gives us our joy and not the passing nature of our problems. You see, consider it all joy, my brothers. This is written to who? Those who have an understanding of sound doctrine. To the world, their only hope in trial is that the problem is passing. Right? This too shall pass, people will say. Well, it'll all work out in the end. Tomorrow's a new day. 
Their only hope is that the problem is passing. Our hope and our joy is in the permanence of God's promises. That's what we sang. And Brother Ray pre-preached this morning. Thank you, brother. The confidence that we have in those promises. Those are what give us joy. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet various trials. I want to look at that word meet for just a minute. That the word that's used there is to, to happen upon something unexpectedly. In fact, I learned that, that the word is used to describe when, uh, when Jesus was giving the, the example of the Good Samaritan, and he says that the man that was going along the way met the thieves, right? The thieves ambushed him on the way. That's, that's how the parable unfolds. We also find the word meet with regards to Paul and in the shipwreck, right? It's something that's unexpected. We do not put trials on our calendar. They catch us when we're least expecting it. And no matter how sound our doctrine is, how prepared we may feel in terms of knowledge, when the trial comes, we, we're not going to expect it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet unexpectedly trials of various kinds. The word various also requires a little bit of, of explanation together and examining. Actually, before, before we look at that, 1 Peter chapter 4 we see a lot of commonalities. Uh, of those 73 different Greek words that, that uh, James uses, there's 10 that intersect only in 1 Peter and James. So don't know. We know those guys spent some time together. And we see that God's word is a beautifully formed tapestry of words that, that complement and never contradict one another. And so we see a lot of similar themes in what Peter says when he describes these fiery trials. He says, Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised when the fiery trials come. And here we are. Feel a little caught off guard? Don't be surprised. When the fiery trial comes. The word various is also one of those 10 words that comes up. If we go back to, to what we read this morning, Brother Ryan read, we see the same word. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice. Same word as joy. Rejoice, joy, go together. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Various. Now the word various, I might have a slide that, that describes this, is a word that would evolve in, in English, but if we go back in etymology, the idea is that it's something that's changing, that it's differing or going astray couple of uh, fun medical terms that have their, their roots in this, neither very pleasant. One is varicose veins, right? We kind of know what those look like. They're veins that have gone off course. Another one is diverticulitis, right? Diverse diver diverticulitis. Things kind of go off kilter. They change. They go astray. And so that word that's chosen, it might seem like it means a variety, right? Like we've got some things to choose from, but what it really means is it's something that's changing, that's differing, that's gone astray. And if we look at that, we see what trials might mean when it says various trials. So we might have a variety of trials. We might have things that are emotional hardships to us. We might have things that are financial hardships to us. They may be relational, conflict within a family, conflict within our relationships. We may have physical trials Various kinds. Some of those trials may be short-lived and some may be prolonged, lasting even the entirety of our pilgrimage on earth. The entirety of our time of exile might be typified by one trial. And it might be one trial that goes through different iterations. A secular definition of grief 
something which we're all acquainted with in various ways, is that grief has stages. They're described as waves that come in, and each time it looks different. Sometimes it's denial. Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's, it's bargaining, or it's depression, or sometimes it's acceptance. That's from secular psychology. Five different stages of grief, and we know that. We also know that the trials of various kinds all have their origin in sin. Now, before you react to that, think this through for a second. In God's perfect plan, as Adam and Eve had perfect communion with him in the garden, there were no trials. Now, we saw in in Job, right, that that particular trial was not a product of Job's sin, but some of our trials might be. Our trials might be a result of our sin, of someone else's sin, but certainly it is of original sin. In the the sinless unity that Adam and Eve had with, with God in the garden, no trials. And you know, we're promising the new creation, no trials, no more tears, no more pain, no more death, no more sickness, no more sadness. But during this time in exile, there's trials. Trials resultant of sin. We recognize that as we face trials of various kinds, because they meet us unexpectedly, we don't get to pick which one we deal with on a certain day. You ever had one of those days where you get the mail and your your vehicle registration and your property tax and and something else all come at the same time? Like, could we get one of these a month maybe? Right? And, And think of the text that Ryan read for us. Job. His sheep, his donkeys, his oxen, his servants, his children, and ultimately the integrity of his friendships, all at the same time. That's how our trials are. And it's for that exact reason that we must consider it all joy. Trials of various kinds. It's worth pointing out again that trials are common, not just to brothers. James says, consider it all joy, my brothers. But trials are, are universal in nature. Any sinner is going to know trial. The hope for the non-believer is that the trial will pass. Of course, to be met by another one. But our hope as believers is that the trial, which may pass, is an opportunity to be sanctified and brought into a closer relationship with God who is permanent. His promises are permanent. That is where our hope and our joy are anchored. Back to James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's important to know, too, that as we move through this uh, portion of James, that we're going to see that what seem a little random, like seem like disconnected ideas, are actually very much woven together. Sean mentioned last week this notion of, of wisdom, needing wisdom from God to face trials. That we'll see in, in verses 5 and onward. And then, and then we'll see um, later on in this same section the word temptation. Now, the Greek word for trial and temptation are the same word. But in, in our English translation, there's a distinction that's made. And while we're not going to talk about temptation today, I do want you to have an operational definition in mind as we move ahead. So for, for trial, it is an opportunity for righteous obedience. A trial is an opportunity for righteous obedience. Temptation, on the other hand, is in the midst of that trial. It's an invitation to unrighteousness, an invitation to disobedience. And what does scripture tell us? We saw it said there, that invitation for disobedience does not come from God. The trial, on the other hand, itself does. The invitation for righteous obedience absolutely, unequivocally comes from the hand of our Father who loves us and disciplines those that he loves. The temptation, the, the invitation to disobedience comes from our flesh comes from our adversary, comes from our accuser, and does not come down 
from the Father above. So make no mistake about that. As you face trials, recognize that they're part of our exile experience. They are a product of sin, and they don't, they're, they're permitted by God, but not inflicted by God. And they're an opportunity to do what? To test our faith. Let this, let steadfast, let, for you know, verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now again, going back to the unbeliever for a minute, this is a universal experience, trials permitted by God, a consequence of original sin at the very least. Test our faith. For the non-believer, it tests the fact that their faith is misplaced. I think of, of two famous people that we, we've all been familiarized with that spent most of their life bound to a wheelchair. We've got on one hand, Johnny Erickson Tata, and we've got on the other hand, Stephen Hawking. We've got one who at every opportunity professes her faith in the permanence of God's promises and the fact that her condition, permitted by God for the edification of the saints. And then we've got another one who spent his whole life insolent, trusting in his own intellect and spouting off nonsense about a God who doesn't exist. Those are the two different ways you can respond. Did they both face trials? Yes. Did their trials both express where their trust was placed? Yeah. One in the permanence of the Lord Jesus Christ and the other in the absence of a God who loves and saves and seeks. When we go through the trials, it reveals the substance of our faith. We're in the, the brother category, right? We use that word around church. What does brother mean? Well, first, it includes feminine, right? Brothers and sisters. Not to be mistaken with friend or visitor or somebody else who comes in who hasn't placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When the trial comes, that foundation is tested. Go with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 24. In my Bible, these words are in red. These are the words of Jesus Christ. It's very probable, permit me to speculate for just a moment, that James is writing this letter, was either here when Jesus preached this, or heard it secondhand. But make no mistake about it, this text would have been in his mind when he wrote these words. This, the trials will test your faith. And here's what the testing of faith looks like. It's a storm that comes. Verse 24 of Matthew 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. The trials and temptations are a storm that beat against the walls of our life. What remains? That which is built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And testing reveals that. Now, going back to the James passage, it says that the testing produces steadfastness. I like to read things in different versions because the word that is translated gives us a different meaning. If you compare, we have the, uh, the King James Version, which we, uh, I don't think it really ever preached from here, but every once in a while it's worth a read through. You probably got a dusty one someplace. It says this, my brethren... Count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing that it is the trying of your faith that worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The word translated there is patience. So we got steadfastness in the ESV, and we've got patience in the King James. And for those that, that are sporting the uh, NASB, we find the word there, Endurance. So however it helps you remember it better, the things that are being produced through that testing are the same. It's either patience, or it's endurance, or it's steadfastness. 
But keep in mind that the scriptures that we're looking through this morning describe it as a storm that comes, as a fiery trial, right? We'll go to, we'll go to a passage in just a minute and look at the, the testing of, of fire. But for those who are athletic, you can think that this testing is producing endurance, a trial, like a time trial, an Olympic trial. It's something that's athletic. The more you experience these trials, the greater your endurance is, your bench strength. If we think of it as a trial producing in us patience, it teaches us to, instead of acting quickly to try to solve our problems, we wait patiently on the Lord. Trusting in his word, trusting in the permanence of his promises, and ensuring that we act out of sound doctrine with godly living. Under trial when backed into a corner, patience, wait. And then, of course, steadfastness. And, and the, the notion of steadfastness, I, there are so many incredible ways that scripture describes it for us. A foundation, a rock, something that is unmoved. And, and recently, I spent a little time down by Harbor Island and uh, watched as boats would go by and the sailboats that were tied to the dock would bob up and down. But the morning, it's driven into the bedrock. The waves lap against it, unmoved. That's steadfast. Unmoved. Driven into the solid rock of Jesus Christ. James says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. Again, other translations do it a little differently. Perfect and entire, perfect and whole. The idea is everything intact when the storm subsides. Everything intact when the firestorm blows through. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul writes, starting at verse 10, we'll read from, from there. He describes that foundation upon which he's building. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care on how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones or wood or hay or straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be, will be real by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. When the temptations come, when those surprised, surprising fiery storms come, what remains? It's that which is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's important for us to remember because as a fire burns through, some things will be consumed and other things will remain. And that's a, a reminder to us that although some of our trials are collective trials that we all go through, the testing of our faith is very individual. The trial that we experience, we experience in different ways. We all go through it. But the testing of our faith is individual. Why? Because our faith is individual. Christ calls us to himself. We respond to his invitation and place our faith in him. That's not something you do as a group. That's not something you do as a family. That's not something you do as a couple. That's something you do individually. And the testing of trial weeds out what is the object of our faith. That's clear throughout the gospel. James heard Jesus say that a number of times in ways. There's sheep, there's goats. There's wheat, there's chaff. There's stubble and there's gold. 
So as we consider our trials, consider the permanence of God's promises. We experience the trial collectively, but we respond and our faith is proven individually for the glory of God. James goes on to say, and this is a, a bit of an anticipation for what, what comes. He says, let, this, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Perfect, another word for that is mature. Okay? Maturity is something that, that is abundantly clear in Scripture. Do you want solid food? Or do you want milk? And when we talk about solid food, we're not just talking about fancy words like substitutionary atonement and propitiation. We're also talking about deep truths of God that say things like religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To keep oneself unstained while in exile from the world around us that does not live righteously. But God promises us, again, the permanence of his promises. He gives us what we need to stand on that rock. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's a pretty absolute statement, don't you think? Like, there's not a lot of, of questioning in our minds for what James means there. It means you'll have most of what you need. You'll come out of the trial, you know, mostly unscathed. No. He says, you'll have everything that you need, lacking in nothing. You'll be complete. Again, James's contemporary and, and likely friend in 2 Peter, one of Brother Mark's favorite verses, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Who's given us everything we need? God has. Participants in his divine nature. That's the permanence. I like that Peter uses the P's there too, right? He says, his precious and very great promises. That's what we're resting on in these times of trial. Lacking in nothing. Now, since um, Brother Ray did such a great job this morning uh, preaching during Sunday school, I'm going to take the liberty of assigning homework during the preaching. So we'll, we'll just trade. I would like to, to throw out this this idea that the book of James is very much patterned after Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So your homework, if you write this down, is to read through Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's the longest single sermon that Jesus gave in the Bible. We have all of the Sermon on the Mount in two chapters. We, we see that as we look at James as being the synoptic epistle, if you follow the structure and you read that carefully, you'll see the commonality. As you move through James, it's going to seem like some, some disconnected ideas and again, with a lot of imperatives. But guess what? It's the words of Jesus Christ spoken through his servant, his slave, his apostle. So that's your homework, the Sermon on the Mount. But I, I want us to conclude what we're looking at today, just beginning to delve into the book of James, understanding that sound doctrine is supposed to produce godly living and that we can have joy in the face of trials because we're resting on the permanence of God's promises. But all of that so that we walk out practical obedience. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, this is a, a different sermon of Jesus on a different mountain. Again, perhaps with, with James within earshot. And we have at verse 16, some sound doctrine. 
It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. But some doubted. The testing of their faith. And then Jesus says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, that's where James begins his, his greeting. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That authority, the, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ given by God the Father, imparted to, to James as well. And, and then Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Church, as we go through this trial... There's lots of questions about how we practically live out the permanence of God's promises. Are we going to be concerned about the passing problems? Sure, of course we are. We're human in our nature. But ultimately, the confidence in those promises are in what Jesus stated. All authority has been given to him. And then he's given a practical instruction about what we're supposed to do next. The disciples didn't have to wander around wondering what their next instruction was. It was given to them clearly. And James reiterates that. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching, to, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And here's the promise. And behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. So when you're facing a, a trial personally, you're, you're going through those different various stages of trial. Bank on the precious promises of Christ. And then get back up and recognize that there's no need to wonder what happens next. The vision and mission of the church of Jesus Christ and those who are his disciples remains unchanged. It was unchanged when James recounted the words of Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And they're unchanged for Pacific Hope today. Behold, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. If that doesn't give you confident hope with which to live through your trial, read it again, and read it again, and read it again. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we thank you that you're the rock on which this church is founded. For those of us who have professed our faith in you, Lord Jesus, and acknowledge that our salvation comes only through you, you are our rock. You, are, you allow us to remain steadfast and enduring. And Father God, we just pray that as a church, that we would find joy in the trials, that we would rest in the permanence of your promises at every juncture. Lord God, that we would endure trials, revealing that you alone are the object of our faith. Our faith is built on you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.